0: Anybody else, please take out your copy of God's Word. If you did not bring one, uh, there is one there in front of you, provided in the back of your pew. Please take that, open it up, and turn to John chapter 8. This morning we're going to be in verses 30 through 36. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 36, page 894 in the pew Bible. The dreadful sermon continues not mine, hopefully, Uh, Jesus's dreadful sermon. Martin Luther, remember, calls this an appalling and dreadful word from Christ. And we are back at it this morning. Last week, we talked about death. This week, we are talking about slavery. Maybe one of the few things we probably want to talk about even less than death these days is slavery. I love history. That's how boring I am. Right? I, I actually think history is interesting and important. I thought I was going to college to study history and to become a history major. That's what I wanted to do because I think it's so important. Again, I'm, I'm quite boring. But I think it's important to understand history and to get history right. I like to read history of places that we're going to visit, or I like to read the history of places where significant historical events are happening. Right? So a few weeks ago, as things were ramping up, in the Ukraine I realized I knew very little about the history of that region and so I picked up a history of Ukraine titled The Gates of Europe because I wanted to to know better what was going on over there. It's hard to understand what's going on in 2022 without some sort of background with what's been going on in the years and the, the decades and the centuries before. But as I was reading this book on Ukraine, I ran into something I wasn't expecting, and I was confronted with an uncomfortable fact well, that I'd never really heard anything about. Uh, we know the history of our nation uh, pretty well and its terrible foibles. Uh, we know that 400,000 Africans were brutally and wickedly kidnapped and shipped to our country over the course of the horrific transatlantic Slave trade. All in direct disobedience to God's clear word in his good law. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Uh, that's what God's law says uh, about that. And it's, it's, it's hard to exaggerate the evil of this. It's hard to understand the miserable experience of this. Right, go read Solomon Northrup's 12 Years a Slave for a, a gripping and brutal first-hand account of this experience uh, back in the middle of the 19th century. Read the book, not, not the movie. But it has also become clear that we're not quite getting the whole story in our current cultural conversation about history and about slavery, as some try and increasingly present the practice of slavery as a, as a Western problem or, or as a white problem. Because that could not be more wrong. Here's why knowing your history is so important. And I was reminded of this as I was just randomly reading through and studying up on my Ukrainian history. As there was a chapter on the period from about the 15th century to the 17th century, about 200 years, just in that short period of time, where over 2.5 million Ukrainians were kidnapped and sold into slavery by the Muslim Ottoman Turks. The, The Ottoman Empire is right below where Ukraine is. In fact, our very word slave comes from the name of the Eastern European people group, the Slavs, who were so brutalized by this horrible practice. More Africans were enslaved by Middle Eastern countries than European countries. More Africans were retained as slaves by other Africans than were sent to the Western Hemisphere. Over a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates in that same period. China was notorious for its slave markets in the past. It was common, maybe most common, in India. It is estimated that there were more slaves just in India than in the entire Western Hemisphere combined. Go read your Native American history, and you'll find that it was a practice long before Columbus arrived, and on and on and on we week ago. Physical slavery is an evil of far greater scope magnitude than we tend to hear. The point is that regardless of attempts to paint slavery as the problem of one particular people group, it is a universal moral evil. It is a historic horror. From the very beginning, it has been the nature of wicked, wretched, fallen man to enslave his fellow man. And that condition, that experience in bondage, enslaved to another person, another power, not free. is horrible. It's misery. It is like death. Last week, chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus said, you will die in your sin. This week, chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A physical slavery, as wretched as it is, is nothing compared to spiritual slavery. Physical slavery as universal as it is, is nothing compared to the universality of spiritual slavery. For none is righteous. All have sinned, and everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But catch this. Here's the truly insidious side of sin. A physical slave knows that they are a physical slave, right? How, How could they not. They are confronted with their misery and their bondage every waking moment of their lives. It's awful, and they know it. But one of the ways in which spiritual slavery is so much worse is that you can be a spiritual slave. You can live your entire life in total spiritual bondage and have no idea, thinking even, that you are free the entire time when you are Not, And more than that, as we turn to our text, Jesus ups the ante and tells us here that not only can you think that you are free when you're actually a slave, but you can think you are his disciple when you're actually not his disciple. If this, he says, you are truly my disciple. That means that it is possible to falsely think you are his disciple. And so as we begin this morning, that the stakes could not be higher. We could not be talking about something more weighty and significant. Last week was life and death. This week is freedom and slavery. Are you alive? Are you free? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you sensitive to and aware of your spiritual situation? James Montgomery Boyce says concerning this text that most people who sit in the pews and listen to biblical teaching on Sunday mornings, are not genuinely born-again Christians. He believes that many <laughs> believe the doctrines, many think they are Christians, but he argues many have not actually been born again and responded to Christ in repentance and faith. Thus, they're not disciples. Thus, they are still slaves. Thus, they are dead in their sin. Isn't it? Is there? Could that be you this morning? It's at least worth consideration It's at least worth giving the next 40 minutes of your time to considering this most important of questions let's consider together christ's word here which could set you free so point number one we're going to start off with the problem we're going to start in the middle of the text sin is slavery you can't see the solution if you don't see the problem point number two though here's the solution Here's the good news. The truth will set you free. How do you know? How do you know, though, if that has happened? Well, that's what we'll look at in point number three, where we'll see what disciples truly are. Where we'll see Jesus say that disciples abide in the word and know the truth. So very important things this morning. Let's all pay attention. Let's all pray and ask God to do his work on our hearts through his word. Let me read for you John chapter 8. Remember, the ESV breakings and paragraphs and headings are particularly bad in this section. So we're picking up in verse 30. Ignore the the heading. And we're stopping in verse 36. I think a new paragraph should start after verse 36. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. This is the truth that could set you free. John 8, verse 30. As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pause. Let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the realism of your word. We thank you for the honesty, sometimes the brutal honesty of your word. We thank you that you are kind enough and that you care enough Uh, to reveal to us our true spiritual condition apart from Christ. Father, I pray that you would do that uh, for some of us in this room here this very morning. I pray that you would show us Christ. I pray that you would show us what it truly means to be his disciple. I pray that you would show us what it truly means to believe. I pray, most importantly, that you would show us the beauty and the glory and the goodness of the freedom that is to be found in Christ. If our problem was as bad as Christ says here, then what he has done to rescue us, Father, is so indescribably good. So capture our hearts with his grace and with his goodness and with with his kindness toward us sinners. Father, use your word. I ask your spirit, Father, I can't. I can't do it. I can't accomplish what needs to be done. Your spirit can. So please, Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would work on my heart. I ask that you would work on the heart of your people. Father, I ask that you would work on the heart of those who are not your people father i ask that you would make someone in this room this morning part of your people um, by your word father show us christ we ask it all in his name amen point number one quite simply sin is slavery we're going to work through this text a bit out of order because i want to start with the problem i want to establish this from the outset and then work towards the only solution We've already said that spiritual slavery is, is so dangerous in part because it's so deceitful. Right? Some of you are sitting in this room right now not even aware of your spiritual bondage. And that's precisely what we see in our text as well. And I want us to focus on verse 34, but let's quickly uh, set uh, the situation in its context. Remember, we left Jesus in the middle of this confrontational conversation with the Jews. Probably at this point, he's dealing... With a mix of the religious authorities and the crowd in general. Jesus has just said to them uh, in verse 21, twice in verse 24, you will die in your sin. So sin is again what we're talking about. And this would have been a very controversial claim from Christ. Jesus is saying to those who considered themselves God's special chosen holy people that they are sinners. And that unless something changes, they will die in that sin. And that unless, in verse 24, was unless they believe that I am. Unless they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. So Jesus is saying that death is our natural state. And that living comes in some way only through believing. I don't know about you. But I very much want to live, which means that I should be very much concerned with making sure that I understand what this believing consists of. And that I, by the grace of God, have done it and continue to do it. Sin is death. Belief is life. We should really want to know what this belief is. Because as we're about to see, it is very possible and very easy to get belief wrong. It is possible to think that you are believing when you are not look at verse 30 here we go we pick up our text as he was saying these things right i am the light of the world i'm the water unless you believe that i am as he was saying these things many believed in him great right that's what we want jesus just said unless you believe here they are believing good news but keep reading Yeah, I think the ESV does some strange things with how they break up this text. There should not be a paragraph break between verse 30 and 31. Verse 31 explains verse 30. In 31, Jesus is very clearly speaking to those of verse 30. And he's clarifying to them what he means by belief. We're going to get to that in point 3. But in 32, he tells them the result of this true belief. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Again, sounds great. That's what we want. That's what all slaves desperately want. Freedom. But look at their response to this glorious offer in verse 33. Notice their blindness to their true spiritual condition. Notice how they are even deceived and unaware of their own spiritual slavery. Jesus has just said, you can be free. Implication? You are not currently free. They get that that's what he's implying. They don't like that. And so they respond. Verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What do they say? What what do you mean become free? We are free. We're, We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, again, if you know your history, as it's so important to uh, you would recognize the potential irony of verse 33. We have never been in bondage. Uh, we, you're in bondage to the Romans right now. right? You're going to have to get their help and permission to kill the Christ. And history. Uh, before the Romans, you were just in bondage to the Greeks. You were in bondage to the Persians before that, and the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and the Egyptians. Right? The history of the Jewish people up until that point is one largely of physical bondage to other people groups. And now, I I think they must know that. Uh, That can't be what they're talking about there. I I don't think. So they must be talking about their spiritual freedom. Sure, yeah, we're in physical bondage right now, and we have been, as we've seen. But we're God's people. At least. We may be in physical bondage. At least we are spiritually free. And Jesus says, not so fast. This, This applies to us as well. This applies to the world. This is an especially important word today in a world that just assumes the universal fatherhood of God. We're all God's children. Jesus is going to provocatively correct that idea next week. Verse 44. In a world that just assumes that we are all inherently pretty good, decent, moral people, just leave me alone, just leave me to myself, let me follow my heart and try my best, and and I'll be all right, we desperately need... Jesus' gracious warning here, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And by the way, everyone who practices sin is everyone. Right? Everyone is a slave to sin. But, man, you know, come on, Jesus. You know, don't you know that we're not supposed to talk about this? Don't you know that even the concept of sin is kind of considered silly and backward today? Honestly, does anyone even really believe this stuff anymore? Well, as is clear from the text, Jesus does. And as will be clear from point number three, you have to believe what Jesus believes if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and be set free from your slavery to sin. So nothing matters more than what Jesus believes. And so we cannot ignore this. We cannot minimize this in hopes of not offending. Uh, The Puritan David Clarkson writes, he is the most faithful friend. And worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. Amen. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If that's true, if Clarkson's correct, then Christ here is demonstrating himself to us as the most faithful of friends. How is that? Well... If, as we've seen, 17.3, knowing God is eternal life, if life is knowing God, then there is nothing more important than knowing God, and if sin is that which rejects and thus separates us from the God who knowing is life, then after knowing God, catch this, there is nothing more important than knowing sin. After knowing God, there is nothing more important than knowing sin. Jesus is kindly teaching us here important things about the second most important thing that you can know. How's your hamartiology? Eh, a very obnoxious, fancy-sounding word. Right, that just means your doctrine or your theology of sin. That's the Greek word for sin. Do you know what sin is? Sin is often defined today as no more than a mere missing of the mark. Uh, that definition of sin is a missing of the mark. Uh, that, that does not do justice to the true nature of the heinousness of of sin. Missing the mark makes sin a mere mistake. No. Uh, Sin is more than missing the mark. Sin is more than mistake. What is it? shorter catechism? Question 14 can help. Uh, What is sin? Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Chapter 6 of the 1689 defines sin as transgression. Sin is the transgression of God's law. To transgress is to, to, to cross over, it's to go beyond uh, the bounds of something. But again, yeah, that doesn't sound all that bad to us because we're not that big of fans of law in the first place. right? So, you know, who cares, really, if we transgress or break that law? Puritans to the rescue. I've mentioned before Ralph Venning. Uh, go read Ralph Venning, one of my favorites. Ralph Venning writes this Sin is the worst of evils, the evil of evils, and indeed the only evil. Nothing is so evil as, nay, nothing is evil but sin. Uh, Ralph Venning penned those words in his work, The Plague of Plagues. That's the name of the book. And he wrote that book, The Plague of Plagues, right after the outbreak of plague, the plague, the, the bubonic plague. Now, one of the last big outbreaks of the bubonic plague was the Great Plague of London in 1665, which killed an estimated quarter of the population. And can you imagine that? COVID has taken the life of about 0.3% of the U.S. population. Yeah, that's That's terrible. But can you imagine 25%? Can you imagine 2 million New Yorkers dead in a year? Can you imagine 66 million Americans dead in a year? That's crazy. But that's the context in which Vinning was writing. That's the context in which Vinning calls sin the plague of plagues. But we think, oh, transgression of the law, yeah, what's the big deal? Listen This paragraph is so good. Here's what sin is. Listen to this. Follow with me here. He writes, The sinfulness of sin not only appears from, but consists in this. Here's what it is. Here's what it consists in. That it is contrary to God himself. Indeed, it is contrarity and enmity itself. Sinners are called by the name of enemies to God. The sinful mind is called enmity itself. Accordingly, it and its acts are expressed by the names of enmity and acts of hostility, such as walking contrary to God, rebelling against God, rising up against Him as an enemy, striving and contending with God, and despising God. Pay attention here. Here's what sin does. Here's, Here's what it really is. Sin makes men haters of God, resistors of God, fighters against God, even blasphemers of God, and in short, very atheists who say there is no God. Last line. Here's what your sin is. Here's what my sin is. Sin goes about to un-God God and is by some of the ancients thus called Dei, uh, dei Sidium. Deus, God, Latin. Dei Sidium, which just means God, murder. Or God killing. Thomas Watson says the same thing. Sin would not only unthrone God, but un-God himself. If the sinner could help it, God would no longer be God. It strikes at the very deity. Sin is God's would-be murderer. That's what your sin is. It's your attempt to ungod God himself. It is your attempt to kill God. As transgression of the law, that is the reflection and expression of the good and holy and loving character of God. To transgress His law is to transgress Him. To reject His law is to reject Him. To rebel against His law is to rebel against Him. And He is good. And He is God. And that makes sin indescribably bad and unimaginably Foolish. Sin is cosmic treason as we say no to him, as we declare that he is wrong and we are right, and in so doing we attempt to dethrone him, ungod him, kill him, and assert ourselves in his place. This is the evil of all evils. Because God is the good of all goods. Right? Do you see your sin as this? Do you understand then why this sin so enslaves. It's due to design. It's due to our design. It's due to how the good and gracious God created us. As Bob Dylan sings, you're gonna have to serve somebody. God created us for him. He wired us for worship to be oriented around him, to find our identity in him, to find our life in him. This is why all of us are looking for something bigger than us. That's why all of us are looking for something to bigger than us to live for. So we, all, we all get so excited about silly basketball games and, and things like that, right? You know I couldn't resist. Uh, but when we reject him, that design does not change. God just gets removed from his place as Lord and King, the only good Lord and King, and then something else rushes in to take his place. And whatever that thing is for you, It owns you. It dominates you. You become oriented around it. You find your identity in it. You serve it. You are enslaved by it. And so sin, as the transgression of God's law and as the rejection of God himself, anyone who does that, which is all of us, Jesus says, is a slave to sin. William Hendrickson... He says about this verse, we're probably too familiar with it. He says, this is one of the most remarkable sayings ever uttered by our Lord. This is so contrary to the spirit of our world right now. Our natural condition is not one of liberty, but slavery. Spiritual slavery. We are not free. Sin is slavery. That's your first point. And it's so important. And so, for the two groups of people in this room this morning... For the first group, those for whom the Son has not yet set free, okay, know that you are enslaved indeed. Consider your sin. Consider the guilt that you experience. Why do you experience guilt? What does that mean? It means that you're guilty before someone. It means that there's a law in a person that you have rejected and transgressed. Consider what it means for you. If all this is true, if there is a God, and he is so graciously good, who created you and gave you life, that you have rejected and sought to murder. And then pay attention to point two, listen to and come to the Christ who can set you free. For the second group, for those of us in here who have been set free by the grace of the Son, how much more then should we hate this sin and flee this sin and kill this sin? How about this? How much worse is our ongoing sin than the sin of the unregenerate? We're very quick to say, They're so awful and pay no attention to ourselves. They don't know any better. We, by the grace of God, know better. We have experienced the grace that saves. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God himself. We should then increasingly hate that sin that separates. That sin that still is an attempt on my part to un-God, the God who gave his life so that I could live. Church, we must hate this sin. Paul tells us in Romans 8, we must kill this sin. We've got to hate this. We've got to fight it and resist it. And it starts with better knowing our sin for what it really is. It is not mere mistake. It is not mere missing of the mark. It is not some small little thing. Every one of it is an attempt to reject and rebel against and ungod the God who has given life to us. Know your sin for what it really is. But then also, point number two, this continues. Killing sin, resisting sin continues with better knowing The truth that will or has set you free. Point number two. The truth will set you free. Slaves, by definition, are not free. Slaves, then, most need to be set free. And this is what Christ has come to do. Let me read verse 32 and verse 36 again. Look at 32 and 36. Jesus says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free." Indeed, yes. I'm gonna after point number one, come on. Does not that, that sound so good? That's what we want. In the midst of some of the most dreadful words from the lips of Christ, here we find some of the most wonderful words from the lips of Christ: "Free." That's what all slaves want: freedom, liberty. But be careful; it's actually quite easy to get this entirely wrong. It's actually quite easy to entirely miss what Jesus is actually saying here, what he is actually offering, and we need to be extra careful, because we find ourselves in a culture that is all about freedom and liberty of some sort. You go, our, our city is most one of the things our city is most famous for, right? Is the statue of Liberty, freedom. You know the line probably from the poem inscribed on the the plaque at its base, the the new Colossus, right? The Colossus of Rhodes, UCC students, was one of the, the great seven wonders of the ancient world. They called the Statue of Liberty the new Colossus, and it's written on the base of the statue. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be. You go to the Statue of Liberty, you pop up the East River, which is not a river at all, but you pop up the East River just a little ways and you'll run into the southern tip of Roosevelt Island and you will find FDR's Four Freedoms Park, named after one of FDR's most famous speeches. His four essential human freedoms he lists are freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. It's a great park. You should go visit the park. We live in a country that began in 1776 with a declaration of Independence, declaring that it is self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We refer to our country as the land of the free, and, and on and on we could go. again. Listen, that kind of freedom is good. We want people to know and experience physical, political freedom. But, and we know this, we're seeing this right now, This can be twisted and perverted. This can be taken to some dangerous and deadly extremes. As we increasingly believe that what freedom really means is freedom from all restraint. Freedom from any external authority. Freedom to do what I want. Freedom to live my life. Freedom to follow my heart. Free to be me. If we read what Jesus is saying here in light of that, in light of what our current culture says about freedom, we're in trouble. Oh, There's also an entire system of theology out there that calls itself liberation theology. It doesn't go by that name as much anymore. It's very, very sneaky. Um, but it is very much alive and well and increasingly making inroads and in making its way into many supposedly evangelical churches today. Liberation theology takes these words of Jesus here, reads them through the lens and language of, of the, the oppressor and the oppressed, and, and argues that what Jesus is about And what Jesus has come to do is to liberate the poor and the oppressed from economic and political bondage. That is not what Jesus has come to do at all. If he came to do that, he failed. That is a false gospel. And so we need to be very careful here. We need to define our terms. What is Jesus talking about? What does he mean by free? It's not complicated. He tells us exactly what he means. Context. Point number two follows and answers point number one. He has confronted them with their slavery in verse 34. Slavery to Rome? Slavery to economic poverty? No, slavery to sin. He is talking about their spiritual slavery. The freedom then that he is offering must be the freedom from that. And since he's already told them in 21, you will die in your sin... And we know that the wages of sin is death. The freedom that he is talking about here is freedom from the dominion of sin and death. He's talking about freedom from sin and death itself. And that is a freedom that is of eternally more value than any sort of physical, economic, or political freedom. This is why D.A. Carson writes on this verse that the pursuit of justice alone will always prove vain and fleeting unless the deeper Enslavement is addressed. This is the freedom that you need. This is the freedom that our world needs. The most physically, economically, and politically free people of this world, apart from Christ, are slaves to sin and will die in their sin unless they are set free in Christ. They may have a couple of decades of relative freedom and comfort, but what awaits them is an eternity of bondage and suffering because they have rejected point number one the good God who made them and gave them life. But, guys, come on. If all this is true, if point one is true, if our sin is so bad, so enslaving with eternal consequences, this this attempt to murder the gracious and good God of life, the God in whom reality exists and holds together, if that's what we did in our sin, how much better then is the offer of freedom from that. The offer of the forgiveness of that. Have you considered the great weight of your sin? And have you seen the great grace of the God that offers you freedom and forgiveness from that sin? This is why the gospel is so good. This is why, this is why anything that gets the gospel wrong is so deadly and dangerous. And damning. It's removing and perverting the one thing that can set us free from the thing that condemns us to an eternity of hell. Look at verse 36 again. Notice there that it is the Son that sets you free. Remember what we learned about this Son last week. We just saw up in verse 24, in verse 28, this Son, Christ, claimed that He is I am. Unless you believe that I am. Delete the he, the he's not in the Greek. Remember, unless you believe that I am God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what makes this so amazing. We've just seen how our sin is directly against the God of love and life. How it is a rejection of him. But here we see that it is that very same God, the offended party, who offers to set us free. How? Look at verse 28 again. Remember this. This is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. When the Son of Man, I am, the Christ, is lifted up on the cross to die. God himself taking on flesh to lay down his life as he is lifted up to die. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he come? Why does Christ die? Because the wages of sin is death. Because all of us, every one of us in this room was a slave to sin. And so to be set free from that slavery, our debt had to be paid. We had to be ransomed, purchased, bought back. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to serve. What does that mean? What did he come to do? And give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Christ came to do. That's why Christ died. His death was a ransom, a payment in our place. It was a substitutionary death. We sin against God. We justly deserve death from this evil of evils. And God's response, He sends His Son. He sends Himself, in a sense, to take on and pay the death that we deserve. We sin against God. God pays. We sin against God. The Son of God dies. That's why God is so good and glorious. That's why He's so compassionate kind that's why he is the god of grace he gives to us what we do not deserve in giving us his own son to die in our place so that we could be set free and live and this is the only way to be set free and live here's why we cannot shy away from the exclusivity of christ here's why we are not loving by saying oh you know that's that's nice that works for you no it doesn't nothing else works except for christ It's only the Son who can set you free because it is only the Son who could and has paid the death penalty that we all deserved for our sin. There's nothing worse than sin and death because it separates us from the God of life. There is, therefore, nothing better than to be set free from that sin and death. Have you been set free? How do you know? I... One of the most important questions there is. How do you know? Well, here's the question. Have you believed? Point number three. Disciples, abide in the word and know the truth. Disciples, abide in the word and know the truth. Catch this. We've just run through how the Son can set you free, but the wording, pay attention again to the wording of point two, was the truth will set you free. Verse 32. What does Jesus mean? And how does truth set free? And why is that what he says in verse 31? Go back to verse 30. Remember, here's our context. Remember why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Verse 30. Many believed in him. Great. Or is it? Here's why the paragraph break Is unhelpful. Jesus is talking in verse 31 to those who believed in verse 30. There's no break in the text, and there's no transition. Commentators go through all kinds of gymnastics to try and argue and say, Hey, look, the group of people has changed somewhere in the text. It it, it just hasn't. You just read the text. It's plain, and it's clear. Uh, So, what we have here in this text, if you read the whole thing, as we'll see here in a couple of weeks, we go from believing, verse 30, quite quickly to stoning, or trying to stone, verse Fifty-nine. What's going on? How do we get from here to here in the course of this one conversation? Well, John has already prepared us for this. This is one of John's themes. We've considered it a couple of times already. We saw back in chapter 2 in verse 23 when many people believed in Jesus, but verse 24, Jesus did not entrust. Literally in the Greek, it's the same word. It says Jesus did not believe them. They believed in some sense, but Jesus did not trust or believe in their belief. So, throughout this book, John goes to great lengths to emphasize that there are two kinds of belief there is true belief, and there is false belief. Which one do we have here in verse 32, in verse 30? Well, verse 31 tells us. Jesus specifically speaks to those who had believed in him. And he speaks to them about what true belief really is. Catch this. Look at what he says. Jesus' words. Pay attention to his words. If, there's an if, if you do this, you are truly my disciples. Which means that some of them may think that they are his disciples, but they are not truly so unless this. Unless what? Look at the verse. Unless you abide in my word. This is another of John's favorite words. We probably most know it from chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Back to verse 2, every branch uh, in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. So in, in chapter 15, Jesus tells us that there's some sort of connection to Christ that is not salvation. And here he tells us that there's some sort of discipleship that is not true discipleship. And the difference, the if, is abiding. And so, what does that mean? Well, in the Greek, the word literally just simply means to remain or to continue or to dwell. And so back in uh, verse 831, only those who abide, who remain or continue or dwell in his word are truly his disciples. Here's the test. Here's the condition. Here's the demonstration of discipleship, true discipleship. To abide, I think, means three things. I'm taking the first two from our passage. I'm taking the third one from chapter 15. I think to abide means three things. First, genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith perseveres. That's just simply what it means to abide, to remain, to stay. Perseverance proves discipleship. To abide is to persevere. But that's not all. Second, many commentators argue that genuine faith obeys They're not arguing that. They're arguing that that's what Jesus is talking about here. Genuine faith obeys. So obedience proves discipleship. To abide is to obey. But that's not all. Third one. Genuine faith communes. Communes. Communion proves discipleship. To abide is to commune with God. I couldn't come up with a perfect word. For the third one. I wasn't sure how best to put it. I'm drawing that one from chapter 15. Where Jesus is using the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He's talking there about something more than persevering. He's talking there about something more than obeying. The branch is connected to the vine. It has a vital, intimate, and real relationship with it. As it draws its very life from it. To abide must include that. It must include intimate, spiritual, real union and communion in Christ. This... I think, is what it means to abide, to persevere, to obey, to commune. And then, again, let me be clear, because some of you are tempted to hear me wrong uh, here. Uh, I'm not saying that these are the things that you need to do if you really want to be a disciple. Start persevering, start obeying, start communing. No, I'm saying these are the things that will result from an experience of the sovereign, regenerating grace of God. This is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in those who are truly born again. These are signs of life. We all will experience these in different degrees. We will all go through highs and, and lows. But any discipleship that does not really consist of perseverance, obedience, and communion is not true discipleship. Which means that that person has not been set free, which means that they are still a slave to their sin which means that they will die in their sin if there is not new birth, repentance, and faith. Here's what I want to say. Let me step back and be clear instead of dancing around, uh, beating around the bush. Because I honestly believe that this is what Christ is saying. Please hear this. There is a difference between profession of faith and possession of faith. You can profess and not possess. The question is, Do you possess, I can't pronounce that word, do you possess that which you profess? Are you abiding? Jesus says, if you abide. Is there, again, however small and weak and struggling, is there perseverance, obedience, and communion? For Jesus is here drawing a disciple distinction. Jesus loves to draw lines. There is such a thing. As a disciple, that is not a disciple. There are true disciples and false disciples. And this is no different than what Jesus does in the parable of the soils. The parable that explains all of the parables in Matthew 13 is about this where two of the soils look like life for a time. The second one springs up, but there's no soil, difficulties encountered, then it falls away and dies. The third one grows up. But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out and it dies. There's no life. Jesus says very clearly there, there's something that looks like faith for a time that is not faith. He says very clearly here, there is something that looks like a disciple for a time that is not truly a disciple. Should we not then be very careful and concerned with discerning our discipleship? correctly. And and here's why this is a particular burden of mine. I lived it for 20 some years. Everyone thought I was a disciple. Everyone told me I was a disciple. I thought at times that I was a disciple. I proved very much and very clearly that I was not a disciple. So I am eternally grateful for the grace of God that opened my eyes and saved me from my sin and self But that started, in part, with a sober realization that I was not what I thought that I was, that I was not what I professed, that I did not possess that which I professed. And so let me try and say this very carefully and very clearly, and let me confess this up front, that this makes me anxious and I'm confident I won't get this completely right. Uh, I'm probably going about this the wrong way, but I'm asking you to bear with me at least and to at least believe that this comes uh, from a good motivation. Some of you in here this morning very much think you are a disciple of Jesus. And you are not a disciple of Jesus. Some of you very much think that you have been set free from sin when you are very much still a slave to sin. And how do I know that? I'm trying not to look at anybody. Everyone's like, is he looking at me? No. <laughs> That's not. That's not what I, listen, how, how do I know that? It's just statistics. And I'm not thinking of specific people at all right now. In a room this size, there are definitely disciples who are truly not disciples. And so first, I say this nervously because I know myself and I know some of you. Right? I know my tendency to hyper-self-evaluate. I live way too much in my head. I am overly introspective. I've joked before that I question my salvation every time I read a Puritan. And so, listen, if that is you, let me be clear. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to the weak faith among us. Hear this. God is so gracious to us in our weak faith. I know some of you are hearing some of these things and you're thinking right now, is this me? No, 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 listen. Our weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. Christ. Here's why Christ talks about faith as a mustard seed. That's the smallest, tiny, little thing. And so here's, here's why I'm nervous to even talk about this, because my goal is not at all to afflict the already afflicted. I know that I'm going to do that for some of you, and that, that is not my goal. I want to comfort many of you with the gracious God who is so good and who is so compassionate and kind, who deals with us as a father who knows his weak and struggling children. That's, that's my only hope. My hope is not in myself and my great faith. Your hope is not in you and your great faith. Your hope is in him and the God who saves those of us with weak, little faith. But there are others who do very much need to hear Christ's gracious warning. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. That then means that if you do not abide in his word, you are not his disciple. In both the parable of the soils and John 15, Jesus talks about bearing fruit. This is the natural, organic result of grace. This should be a simple, uncontroversial idea. Grace works. The grace of the all-powerful God does something. It shows itself in some way. And it shows itself, in part, in perseverance, obedience, and communion. Yeah, in many of the circles that so many of us grew up in, and this is me, and this is part of, of my struggle for so long in my life, today, in our circles, faith is largely little more than verbal assent. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, you're saved. No. No. I do not know that. I cannot tell you that. Profession of faith does not mean that you're saved. Accepting or inviting Jesus into your heart whatever that means I don't know what that means it's not in the Bible whatever that is that doesn't mean that you're saved coming to church sometimes doesn't mean that you're saved coming to church never might mean that you're not I don't know Um, being baptized giving money whatever the list is none of these external things are salvation so let let me try and say this very carefully (laughs) this is wrong hold on let me say this carefully belief alone is not enough it's not very careful bare belief mere belief intellectual belief alone that's not biblical belief jesus does not say if you say you believe some things about me then you are my disciple jesus himself defines belief as abiding and i'm trying to just take jesus's words We for so long have heard, do you believe this? Yes, you're saved. Jesus says, if you abide in my word. So what does that mean? That means that belief, then, is not this bare intellectual assent that, yeah, yeah, I kind of believe these things. No, belief is recognizing the hopeless truth about myself and my helpless condition in sin. It is recognizing the glorious truth about the gracious Christ. And then it is looking to him. It is to trust him. It is to to cast off all hope and all reliance on myself, my ability, my righteousness, my anything, and hopefully, not hopefully, but in hope, totally turn to him and trust in him. Faith is trusting belief. John Murray says, faith is trust in a person, the person of Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves ...to Him. It is not simply believing Him. It is believing in Him or on Him. Or as I argued a couple months ago, it is believing into Him. Remember, the Greek is never believe in Him. It's it's a different word. It's believing into or onto Him. That means that faith is not... I believe this stuff about Jesus. Faith is what connects us to the living Christ. And just as my real connection... And relationship to my wonderful wife profoundly changed me and affected me and demonstrated itself in my life. Yes, yeah, slowly, sometimes, right? I'm so stubborn and awful and terrible, uh, but it's it's there, right? There's been a connection and there's been uh, an affection. It has changed and demonstrated itself. So does and must a connection to the real and living Christ, who is life. Do you have that? Has He changed your life? Hey, here's a difficult question, I think, for all of us. Hey, do you enjoy him? Like at all? I, I didn't for a really, really long time. I had no idea what that meant. Are you glad in him? Martin Lloyd-Jones says the thing that the world most needs is joyful, glad Christians. Have you ever read the Psalms? <laughs> I think I used to not read the Psalms in part because they made me very uncomfortable. In part because their experience was so foreign to my experience. These psalms are these scriptures that most clearly describe to us Christian experience. That describes to us the joy of knowing the Lord. Is your delight in the law of the Lord? Chapter 1, verse 2. Has he put more joy in your heart than when grain and wine abound? Chapter 4, verse 7. Do you give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart and recount his wonderful deeds? Are you glad and do you exult in him? Chapter 9. Verse 1, can you say that you have no good apart from him, that in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? Chapter 16, is he your strength, God, rock, refuge, shield, salvation, stronghold? 18, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Thirty-four-eight: as a deer pants for flowing streams, does your soul thirst for God? Chapter 42, and on and on and on we could go. And, and, and listen, again, for you who are like me, I know that my experience often falls woefully short of all that, right? I'm not asking if you're constantly living on the the mountaintop of the high with David where your soul is just panting and after and longing for the beauty of the Lord at all times and in all ways. No, I, I, I understand. Life is hard. We are fickle and weak. There will be ups and downs. There will be highs and lows. I'm asking, do you have an interest in the things of God? Are you concerned with the things of the Lord at all? Is your mind set on the things of the Spirit? Here's a great test. Again, notice the wording of point two. Notice what Christ says. If you abide in my word, the word's the test. The word is the test of discipleship. Here's your point of application. Consider this. In our world where faith is little more than saying you believe in Jesus, are you abiding in his word? Matthew 4:4, man does not live. By bread alone, but by the word. Is the word of God food for your hungry soul? Is your belief in Jesus important enough to you to give yourself and some of your time? To reading and studying that word and communing with the Christ of that word. That that word that Christ says, if you abide in it. Is that word working in your life, bearing fruit, manifesting itself in in, in some way, changing you? Again, however slowly, I'm the slowest among us probably. Is your attitude towards your time and your money affected by the word of Christ at all? 1 John, do you love the people of God and desire to be with them more than the people of the world? Are you shaped by the word of God more than you are shaped by the world? Listen, if your answer is no to these things, well, you at least have some sort of cause for concern. The truth of God's word is a disciple's greatest treasure because it is here that he finds and meets the Christ who sets him free, the Christ who is life. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you do not, you are not. It's that simple. The people of God love God. That means that they take an active interest in him. They th- think about him. Do your thoughts ever drift to the Lord uh, throughout the day, meditating on him and, and on his word and on his goodness towards you? Uh, the people of God care about God. The people of God love the word of God. The people of God love the people of God. Is that true of you? I mean, isn't it at least worth considering? We are told to do this. 2 <laughs> Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Because this is the most important thing. All those things that are like the, on the top of your radar right now, they don't matter. doesn't matter if Carolina wins another game. doesn't matter if your work situation improves. It, it doesn't matter if you... You know what I mean. All these things do matter to some degree. None of them matters in comparison to this thing. This is life and death. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Jesus' words. You will die in your sin, Jesus' words, unless, unless the Son sets you free. And so, what do you do? Here's what you don't do. Right? First off, let's be clear. You don't leave here resolved to try harder and do better. If, if you're not a believer, if you're, if you're being made aware right now that you do not know this Christ, um, if, you, if you are a believer and you're like me, you're aware of how painfully short you fall of where you want to be, yes, Sure. We should resolve to try harder and do better by the grace of God in full reliance on the Holy Spirit. But if you're not a believer, if you're becoming more aware of that right now, it's not try harder, do better. It's not obey more. It's not abide in the word more. No, it's, it's call upon the name of the Lord. It's, it's cry out to the only one who can. Save you. It's not try harder or do better. It's see for the first time your true spiritual condition of slavery to sin and come to the one for the first time who can save you and set you free. So what do you do? Cry out to him and ask him to give you a new heart and repentance and faith and then don't stop crying out to him until he does. There's no more important thing than this. Cry out to him. And ask him to do the thing that only he can do. There's nothing more important than your soul. Has your soul been set free from sin and death by the gracious son who gave his life that we might live? Church, come on. Let's, let's see him for who he is. Right? Let's see how gracious and glorious and good he is. Let's believe in him, which means to trust him and to give ourselves entirely to him, love him, abide in him. And church, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that is freedom indeed. That's where you'll find what you're looking for, the joy and the contentment and the life and the peace. It's all found in him. It's only found in Christ. Bow with me, and let's close now with a word of prayer. Father, we do now ask, we call upon your name, we pour out our hearts before you, each person in this room has uh, different needs, each person in this room requires something different um, from your spirit, everyone in this room who does not know you requires the same thing, They require your grace and your mercy and the new life that only you can give, and so we ask that you would give it. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of dead hearts we ask that you would give new hearts Father show us what sin is forgive us for how flippantly we treat our sin forgive us for how prone we are to make it such a small little thing that doesn't really matter help us to see it for what it really is and to hate it and as we see it for what it really is Father show us so much more gloriously what Christ has really done for us that he took all of that rebellion and treatment he took all of our attempts to kill God and he died in our place. Father, capture our hearts with the grace and the goodness of Christ. Father, give us a great longing and a desire to honor him, to commune with him, to obey him, to to persevere with him for the whole of our lives um, because he has given the whole of his life for us. Father, do these things on our behalf because we cannot uh, do them. Father, whatever is needed to be done, we ask that you would do it. I pray that you would comfort the hearts that are already afflicted. I pray that this word would not be a further burden to those who know you, who so struggle with the difficulties of life and, and the sin that remains. Father, give them the great comfort and mercy and grace that is found in the spirit that dwells in them. I pray that they would look not to themselves, but to you for their hope. But Father, for those who clearly do not know you, I pray that you would make that clear, and I pray that you would save their souls and that you would draw them to Jesus Christ. Father, my work is done. Uh, Your work is infinitely more important. And so we ask that you would do that work now. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.